Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for October 2013. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we wrap up the previous month's critical care literature that caught our eye. Let's start with the Brain ICU Study Investigators trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Long-Term Cognitive Impairment After Critical Illness. This multi-centre prospective study of a diverse population of critically ill patients describes the prevalence of long-term cognitive impairment after critical illness. And it tests the hypothesis that the longer duration of delirium in the hospital and higher doses of sedative and analgesic agents are independently associated with more severe cognitive impairment up to one year after hospital discharge. So the rationale is that previous studies into cognitive impairment after critical illness have either occurred in single disease processes or have lacked in-depth assessment of risk factors. The BRAIN ICU study and BRAIN stands for bringing to light the risk factors and incidence of neuropsychological dysfunction in ICU survivors. The BRAIN ICU study enrolled 821 adults with respiratory failure, cardiogenic shock or septic shock. They excluded, among other reasons, patients with psychoses, substance abuse, neurodegenerative disease, cardiac surgery, anoxic brain injury, or severe dementia. They assessed cognitive impairment, and it was present at baseline in 6% of the patient cohort. At three months, 40% of patients had scores of 1.5 standard deviations below the population mean, and 26% had scores two standard deviations below. At 12 months, when they reassessed them, 34% of patients had scores that were similar to moderate traumatic brain injury, while 24% had scores similar to mild Alzheimer's. The duration of delirium was independently associated with worse global cognitive function at 3 and 12 months and was present in 74% of patients during hospital stay. The authors postulate that the mechanism linking delirium and long-term cognitive impairment may be brain inflammation um, or neuronal apoptosis or both. They also found that the use of sedative or analgesic agents was not associated with cognitive impairment at 3 and 12 months. So in summary, cognitive impairment in the year after ICU is common. It is associated with delirium in a hospital, although the reason for this association is not clear. Despite efforts to account for confounders, pre-ICU cognitive impairment cannot be easily assessed. Finally, there is no obvious solution to this problem, although one could argue rehabilitation targeting cognitive impairment may become a priority in this population. The next study we'll look at, published in JAMA, is the universal glove and gown use and acquisition of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the ICU, a randomised controlled trial. So this cluster randomised trial was performed in 20 US ICUs, and it examines the effect of wearing gloves and gowns for all patient contacts in the ICU compared to usual care. Now, usual care was defined by CDC guidelines as healthcare workers wearing gowns and gloves 
for patients with known antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The outcome was MRSA or VRE acquisition in ICU. And in both arms of the trial, all patients had ICU admission and discharge surveillance cultures. Uh, that was nasal swabs for MRSA and perianal swabs for VRE. In over 26,000 patients, there were 92,241 assays collected. And what they found was that in the intervention group, there was a decrease in the primary outcome of MRSA or VRE, which decreased from 21.4 per 1,000 days to 16.9 per 1,000 days during the study period. So that's a decrease in 4.4 MRSA or VRE acquisitions per 1,000 days. In the control group, it decreased from 19 to 16.3 per 1,000 days, a difference of minus 2.7. So in the intervention arm, the decrease was minus 4.4. In the control arm, minus 2.73. Now, the primary outcome was that comparison of change from baseline to study period was 1.7, the difference. Uh, And that wasn't significantly different with pretty broad 95% confidence intervals of minus 6.15 to 2.73. So there was no difference in VRE acquisition on its own between the groups, but there was a difference in MRSA acquisition, which was significantly lower in the intervention group. And finally, the intervention was associated with decreased healthcare entry in the rooms, improved hand hygiene compliance, and there was no difference in adverse events. So overall, this was a negative study. That is, universal glove and gown use doesn't decrease MRSA and VRE acquisition compared to standard care. However, the effect on MRSA acquisition was different, and perhaps that is a hypothesis-generating area to look at. Now, the mechanism of this effect with MRSA could be due to improved hand hygiene compliance, it could be due to the fewer visits into the room, or it could be due to increased barrier precautions. Again, in JAMA, we have a study, Induced Hypothermia in Severe Bacterial Meningitis, a randomised clinical trial. This open-label, multi-centre RCT tested the hypothesis that induced hypothermia, cooling to 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for 48 hours, improved outcomes in adult patients with severe bacterial meningitis. They found that this was not the case and that moderate hypothermia may be harmful. As a result, the trial was stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Committee because of excess mortality in the treatment arm. So this is an important study. If you were a unit that practice induced hypothermia in severe adult bacterial meningitis, this suggests that it's harmful. So the details, multi-centre RCT based in 49 French ICUs. Meningitis was defined as either one CSF white cell count of more than 100 per microliter and a glucose CSF blood ratio of less than one-third, two CSF protein concentration of more than 2.2 grams per litre, or microorganisms observed on a CSF gram stain, three, a positive soluble antigen test or PCR for pneumococcus or meningococcus, and four, positive CSF cultures. Now, all patients had a GCS of eight or lower for less than 12 hours and had received appropriate antimicrobial therapy. 
Hypothermia was achieved by cold saline push at 4 degrees Celsius and it was maintained for 48 hours, followed by passive rewarming. Controls received standard care. Treatment separation was achieved. The mean temp was 33.3 at 24 hours in the treatment group, 37 at 24 hours in the control group. The trial was designed as a triangular sequential study. An unfavourable outcome was expected in 35% of patients with a 15% absolute risk reduction based on previous studies and a sample size of 276 cases was required per arm. The groups were well matched at baseline with 76 to 78% of cases due to pneumococcus. At 98 patients, mortality in the hypothermia group was 51% compared to 31% in control. After adjustment for risk factors, this remained high, but not significant uh, risk ratio of 2.17, 95% confidence intervals of 0.89 to 3.45. At three months, 86% in the hypothermia group had unfavourable outcomes, 74% of controls. A favourable outcome, which was mild, moderate or no disability, was observed in 34% in hypothermia and 39% in control. So the combined percentage of bad outcomes, which is severe disability, vegetative state or death, was 65% in hypothermia and 62% in control. There were no difference in adverse event rates to explain this outcome, that is, nosocomial infections, hemorrhage or CVS effects. There was more septic shock in the hypothermia group and it was associated with mortality in the Cox proportional analysis. So moderate hypothermia resulted in a similar distribution of favourable outcomes but an increase in death, with this coming from the severe disability group. The increase in septic shock in the hypothermia group may have affected outcomes. Overall, moderate hypothermia cannot be recommended in severe adult bacterial meningitis. Let's go back to the New England Journal of Medicine with the study High-Flow Nasal Cannula in Very Preterm Infants After Extubation. So is the use of high-flow nasal cannula superior to nasal CPAP as a respiratory support post-extubation in very preterm infants? In this multi-centre, non-inferiority trial, 303 very preterm infants were randomised to either high-flow nasal cannula or nasal CPAP post-extubation. The primary outcome was treatment failure, and the reasons included apnea, increase in FiO2, respiratory acidosis, or urgent need for reintubation within seven days. High-flow nasal cannula was found to be non-inferior to nasal CPAP with an outcome of 34.2% compared to 25.8% of treatment failure. So 52 patients experienced treatment failure from the high-flow group and 48% of these 52 were successfully treated with nasal CPAP or nasal intermittent positive pressure ventilation. This resulted in a 17.8% reintubation rate in the high-flow group compared to 25.2% in the nasal CPAP group. There were no differences in other secondary outcomes or adverse events. So in summary, high-flow nasal cannula was not inferior when compared to nasal CPAP for post-extubation respiratory support in preterm infants.
back to JAMA and let's look at the crystal randomized trial. This is the effect of fluid resuscitation with colloids versus crystalloids on mortality in critically ill patients presenting with hypovolemic shock. So this study provides more evidence for the crystalloid versus colloid debate. This multicenter RCT investigates the question in the subset of patients with septic shock, a subset in whom there was a suggestion of benefit of colloid or albumin in the SAFE trial. So the nuts and bolts of this study, it's a pragmatic, international, non-blinded, randomised trial performed in two parallel groups. It went from February 2003 to November 2012. That's over nine years. The adults were admitted to 57 ICUs in France, Belgium, Canada, Algeria and Tunisia. To be eligible, you had to have received no prior fluids for resuscitation during the ICU stay and now require fluid for acute hypovolemia. Now, acute hypovolemia was defined by the combination of hypotension, evidence for low filling pressures and low cardiac index as assessed either invasively or non-invasively, and signs of tissue hypoperfusion or hypoxia. Patients were randomised to crystalloid, which is any crystalloid, or colloid, and that could be gelatins, starch, dextrans, or albumin as the resuscitation fluid, but not the maintenance fluid. They aimed to enrol 3,010 patients. Um, that was based on an absolute mortality difference of 5% and expected 28-day mortality rate of 20%. The study was stopped at the sixth interim analysis due to no difference in mortality, with a final recruitment of 2,857 patients. The primary outcome, which was 28-day mortality, was 25.4% in the colloid group compared to 27% in the crystalloid group, relative risk of 0.96, confidence intervals crossing 1. There was no difference in secondary outcomes, with the 90-day mortality 30.7 versus 34.2%, and no difference in number of days alive, renal replacement therapy or organ failures. There was a significant decrease in vasopressor duration and days without it, uh, mechanical ventilation in the crystalloid group. The assessment of outcome uh, by different admission groups, e.g. sepsis, trauma or other causes of hypovolemic shock, did not reveal significant differences. So, a big but negative study. But the criticisms are clear. It was open-label, it took nine years to recruit, and the mix of fluids in the two arms, that is any crystalloid versus any colloid, compares two pretty heterogeneous groups. And perhaps the analogy is the two football teams spent a long time on the pitch and the result was a draw. And it tells us that the teams are equal, but it doesn't really tell us who the superstars or the underperformers were. So I'm not sure what this adds to our knowledge or use of fluids. Again, in JAMA, we have the effects of statin therapy on mortality in patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia, a randomised clinical trial. So the role of statins in sepsis is gradually becoming clearer. There is conflicting evidence from observational and randomised trials with different effects observed if commencing statins in statin-naive patients versus continuing statins during critical illness. This prospective RCT found the use of simvastatin 60 milligrams for the adjunctive treatment of VAP was not associated with a reduction in 28-day mortality 
in 300 patients randomized to statin or placebo on the same day antibiotics were started for VAP. It was conducted in 26 French ICUs and the study was stopped at the first interim analysis for futility, thereby enrolling only 300 of a planned 1,002 patients, assumed 28-day mortality of 30% with an 8% absolute risk reduction. There was a nearly 6% absolute increase in 28-day mortality in the simvastatin group overall, that's 21.2 versus 15.2%, and a nearly 8% absolute increase in the statin-naive group subgroup. So what does this tell us? Well, de novo statins are not of benefit and might be harmful when started for VAP. This does not answer the question of should statins be continued. And once again, when designing studies, we seem to overestimate mortality and perhaps effect size, as actual 28-day mortality was 15 to 21%, not 30%. And this is proving to be a real problem for ICU studies. And the last study in JAMA for the month was effect of heart rate control with esmolol on hemodynamic and clinical outcomes in patients with septic shock, a randomised clinical trial. So the use of beta blockers in sepsis could be considered a balancing act between the possible benefit to patients by decreasing the deleterious effects of catecholamine stimulation, seen in heart failure, etc., versus the harmful effects of depressing myocardial performance and precipitating cardiovascular instability in an already compromised patient. This open-label Phase two study randomised 77 patients with septic shock requiring high-dose noradrenaline, and this is after 24 hours of hemodynamic optimization to a PA occlusion pressure greater than 12, mixed venous sac greater than 65%, mean arterial pressure greater than 65 millimetres of mercury, and a heart rate that was persistently greater than 95. So they randomised these patients to esmolol IV versus placebo with an aim to maintain heart rate between 80 and 94 beats per minute. They found that 52% of patients had heart rates less than 95, so were not enrolled. And that left 48% of patients with vasopressor-dependent septic shock with the persistent tachycardia who were eligible. The patients were mainly pneumonia and peritonitis and were receiving an average of 0.4 mics per kilo per minute of NORAD at enrolment. This is a pretty sick group of patients. The heart rate targets were achieved and were significantly different. So in the esmolol group, it was approximately 85 beats per minute, while in the control group, it was 105 beats per minute for the first 96 hours. So it worked. And this was analysed and presented as an area under the curve data and change relative to baseline tables. The mean arterial pressure was maintained in the esmolol group and surprisingly was associated with a significant decrease in NORAD compared to control. Stroke volume index decreased and cardiac index increased in the esmolol group. The other findings suggesting benefit of esmolol included pH was higher, lactate was lower, markers of myocardial injury were reduced, EGFR was higher, PF ratio was higher. And finally, there was a significant decrease in mortality. So the 28-day ICU mortality was 49.4% in the ESMOL group 
versus 80.5% in the control group. Now, that's pretty high in the control group. So overall, this phase two study suggests that heart rate control with a beta blocker and septic shock with high-dose noradrenaline produced more favourable hemodynamic effects and outcomes than control. Now, this is single centre phase two. So it is hypothesis generating, but it's a very interesting result. In critical care medicine, another study looking at the role of the intra-aortic balloon pump. So this randomised controlled trial of pre-operative intra-aortic balloon pump in coronary patients with poor left ventricular function undergoing coronary artery bypass surgery. So is there benefit in the pre-operative placement of IABPs in patients with left ventricular function that's impaired undergoing coronary artery surgery? Prior to this study, there have been a total of 62 patients randomised in five RCTs to address this question. The pooled results led to the conclusion that preoperative IABP placement resulted in reduced mortality, although the numbers are clearly small and there was considerable heterogeneity in terms of indication, timing and type of surgery. This single centre prospective RCT Randomised patients with an LVF of less than 0.35 and stable hemodynamics, that is no inotropes or so no cardiogenic shock, having non-emergent coronary artery bypass grafting to balloon pump, which was set at one-to-one, versus no balloon pump, and they could have a post-operative balloon pump inserted to assist weaning from cardiopulmonary bypass if cardiac index was less than two despite adequate filling and inotropic support. The hypothesis was that balloon pumps would result in a 50% decrease in the primary outcome of major morbidity, which included stroke, acute renal failure, prolonged mechanical ventilation, deep sternal wound infection, need for reoperation and operative mortality from a baseline rate of 40%. Power calculation resulted in a sample size of 160 patients, with two interim analyses planned at 50 and 60% enrolment. The results were that the study was stopped after the second interim analysis due to futility. 110 patients had been enrolled. The groups were well matched at baseline, and the primary outcome of major morbidity was 40% in the balloon pump group versus 31% in the control. So higher, that odds ratio of 1.49 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.68 to 3.33, very broad. And there was no difference in any of the individual factors. Secondary outcomes of mechanical ventilation duration, cardiac output, ICU and hospital stay were no different. The only differences observed in the balloon pump group were a non-significant increase in cardiac index pre-bypass with an associated increase in dopamine use post-bypass in the control group that did not persist into ICU stay. In addition, the balloon pump was associated with a lower mean arterial pressure. 13% of patients in the control group received a post-coronary bypass balloon pump or rescue balloon pump. So in summary, this trial does not support the use of prophylactic intra-aortic balloon pump in patients with decreased left ventricular ejection fraction having non-emergent CAGs. So that's another negative study for balloon pumps this year. Finally, 
a study that looks at knowledge translation interventions for critically ill patients, a systematic review. So the translation of what we know into what we do remains elusive and is recognised as a crucial deficiency of modern healthcare. This systematic review of knowledge translation, which is called KT, aims to assess the strength of evidence regarding knowledge translation interventions in ICU. So the authors identified 119 studies, four were RCTs, three were uh, types of smaller RCTs and 112 observational studies for inclusion. The sort of topics covered were VAP, CLABSI, sedation, antibiotic use, weaning, hand hygiene, glycemic control, sepsis and nutrition. And the KT interventions most commonly studied were education, clinical protocols, audit and feedback, reminders, practice guidelines, bundles, and sort of person-team organisation change. Overall, the evidence demonstrating the benefit of KT interventions on process measures and clinical outcomes were pretty sparse, and most of the studies were observation with overall methodological quality low or moderate. To date, it seems, protocols, guidelines, bundles, plus or minus education are the best ways to change behaviour with audit feedback adding further benefit. However, single KT interventions like protocols are effective. The funnel plot suggested that publication bias for both dichotomous and continuous outcomes exist and it appears that there is a publication of small studies with large effects and large studies with small effects, all positive. There's a lack of negative, particularly small negative studies, which isn't really surprising. The authors conclude that limitations in the amount and quality of existing studies do not allow clear identification of the best knowledge translation strategies for improving the use of best practices in ICUs. Protocols, with or without education, were associated with the greatest improvements in the process of care, and multiple KT interventions did not appear better than single interventions, but there's only limited data assessing bundles. Further research is needed to address the existing gaps in the KT literature in critical care. Well, there you have it. That's it for the month of October. Come to the website to look at the papers in more detail. Otherwise, the team from Critique will see you next month. Thanks and goodbye. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules, and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.